Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen, listen for, for the, the word. word. Welcome to our podcast today, everybody. And it's, it's nice to have you with us. And today that we are headed to the baptism of Jesus in Luke 3, verses 15 through 17 and 21 through 22. You're going to hear some repeat of some of the things we did easier. And Alan's going to give us some background as to maybe why the lectionary takes us back into material we've kind of already had in the lectionary. Yeah. Go ahead, Alan. So, yeah, the, the, the gospel lesson for today does present us with Jesus' baptism according to Luke's gospel. And one thing I want to say first and foremost is, you know, I'm aware we all have this tendency to just, uh, as Christy calls it, collapse the three Gospels into whatever one that we're most familiar with. And so I think, I think when it comes to the baptism of Jesus, the, 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 what, what the image that comes to mind is an image that's more driven by Mark's Gospel or Matthew's account than Luke's. And so um, I think we have to be really, we have to really pay attention to some of the details that Luke emphasizes and some of the ones that he leaves mm-hmm. out. Mm-hmm. And so the lectionary does back up and repeat John's testimony to Jesus, which I think is a significant interpretive move because it sets the tone for the gospel reading for the week. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and, you know, as when we talked about this a few weeks ago, I mentioned the statement that John's description of Jesus' ministry is very different from Jesus' ministry in Luke's gospel, mm-hmm. and and there is some sense to that. There's there's some debate about that actually. So we're going to delve into that in a little more detail. Uh, some people would say that there was a big distinction between John's ministry and Jesus' ministry, and some people would say no, they they really is more continuity there. So hmm. we're going to look at that. Interesting. Well, let's. Let's put it in the context then. Tell us where we're starting with this. Well, we jump into the section of this passage where um, uh, Luke tells us that the people were wondering whether John the Baptist might be the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And as we discussed a few weeks ago, John's answer that I am not worthy to untie the thong of his sandal is found in all four Gospels mm-hmm. in some form. Uh, earlier, Luke, along with all the other three Gospels, all four Gospels, also quote Isaiah Mm -hmm. 43 to serve as the framework for understanding John's ministry. He is the voice crying out in the wilderness and the one who prepares for the way of the Lord. But uh, John himself says that the coming one is not only more powerful, but also greater than he. And so it's very clear that John is pointing away from himself to Jesus. Yeah, and it, I, as, you, as you're discussing this, I'm just so taken by that these are in all four Gospels, they all four quote mm-hmm. Isaiah 43, and yet they're all going to take their own kind of trajectory mm-hmm. on this, which Definitely. I think it's not just a repeat. And, you know, we're told this, I'm reminded of this, but it's really easy not to pull apart the pieces that you're going to pull apart today so yeah, it's easy to it's easy to read them all the with sort of the same the, the 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 image that we have in mind from from some of the other gospels mm-hmm. yeah definitely so let's head into luke a little bit more specifically tell us a little more why luke is unique 
Yeah, so the, so here um, we go on then and, and, and um, you know, the evidence of the coming one's power and greatness is that he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire in Luke 3.16. Mm-hmm. And while John clearly proclaimed the coming judgment in Luke's account, it is the coming one that he's pointing to who will bring that judgment to pass. Mm-hmm. And he, as we saw a few weeks ago, he says, you know, his winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his granary, but the chaff he will burn with with unquenchable mm-hmm. fire. And so as we mentioned a few weeks ago, this seems like a rather apocalyptic understanding of Jesus' ministry. Um, nevertheless, you know, uh, you know, even if there is a distinction, even if Luke does present Jesus' ministry as very different from John's, you know, nevertheless, I think it's important to note that Luke is being true to, I guess, his sources in terms of reporting mm-hmm. what John said. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Again, um, Moltmann uh, argues in the coming of Jesus that, um, you know, essentially John and Jesus envision a very different kingdom of God from one another because John's is a kingdom, you know, based on on repentance and it's a kingdom of division and exclusion mm-hmm. whereas Jesus seems to envision and and promote a kingdom of inclusion where you know the prostitutes and the tax collectors are going into the kingdom ahead of the religious leaders so does it does John imply that there's already been a division yes 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 in fact that is the case um you know because the language is you know it's it's like the division has already been made the grain and the chaff have already been separated Mm -hmm. all that remains is for 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 the one who is coming to gather the wheat into the granary and then to burn the chaff um and so you know, again, that that doesn't sound much like Jesus Not to all. us. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's something to what Montbon is saying here. But there are a couple of other possible scenarios that we should consider. And okay. I'm, I'm re- referring to Joel B. Green's commentary on Luke. Uh, Joel Green is a wonderful New Testament scholar, and um, his commentary, although it's a little bit brief for my taste, it's not really what you would call a critical commentary, Mm -hmm. but then that might make it better for many of our listeners as opposed to me, you know, digging into some of the nuts and bolts Mm -hmm. details. But especially noteworthy in Luke and Acts is the statement that the coming one would baptize with the Spirit and fire. And of course, one one possible mm-hmm. way of understanding sort of what what John is trying to get at is that you know we could see this as pointing forward to Pentecost. Yeah, you know because that the the, the Spirit and fire the connection there with Luke with the with the, with right. the narrative about Pentecost uh-huh. and Acts you know is is very possible. Another possibility here is that Luke is pursuing the theme this theme of division that this child is destined for the falling and rising of many in mm-hmm. Israel, which is it was what Simeon says to Mary at Jesus' presentation. And so with John, the process of separating the wheat from the chaff is presupposed to have already happened. And as I said before, what is left is to gather the wheat and burn the chaff. Mm-hmm. And this notion of a separation in Israel in response to the kingdom of God as Jesus would bring it seems to be kind of the central idea in this. And we can see this to some extent, you know, even though Jesus proclamation of the kingdom was one that was an inclusive one nevertheless it had it had an effect of dividing people people Mm -hmm. divided over that okay and so um you know I, i don't know that jesus ministry quite fulfilled john's expectations later 
you know, Luke tells us that John himself, as he's in prison, right. you know, I'm sure he's hearing reports about Jesus' ministry, and he's wondering. He sends messengers to ask if Jesus is the one who was to come. And so he's not sure himself. You know, he's kind of put his life on the line. He's literally put his life on the line right. in, very, in, 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 in a very real sense. And, and so he's wondering, is this really the one, or was there someone else? Should we expect someone else is one of the questions John asked, mm-hmm. has his messengers asked Jesus. Um, so, you know, there is this, this kind of separating function of Jesus ministry. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jesus himself speaks of this. He says, he, he sa- he says, he has come to kindle a fire on earth and, and, and to, and to bring division in, mm-hmm. in one. Of, and it's, it's, it's a, it's a, a saying that's, that's not only in Luke, I think it's in both Matthew and Mark. And it's a difficult saying because, you know, it's the one where I've come to set a mother-in-law against Mm daughter-in-law and, you know, people of your own family against one another. And I I don't know that I would say that if you look at the way Jesus ministry is portrayed, that he set about intentionally Right to 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 Divide. drive people mm-hmm. away, but I think he was very much aware that his that the kingdom of God would have that effect. It would have that mm-hmm. dividing effect, that sort of sifting effect, because because right. of the way people responded to the sense. kingdom. Yeah. Uh, can I go back for a minute? There's something that caught me as as I was as I was listening to you talk about John. I think um, I think a lot of people come to John treating him more than human himself. Right. I mean, yeah, I, I, think I would not people, say that. No, I agree. I agree. And as I'm listening to this, I'm reminded that John's role is someone uh, that really, I mean, is, is an important space for Jesus, but we tend to put too much into John as John knowing mm-hmm. that who Jesus is. And I, I like how this is portrayed yeah. here. Yeah. Because John, John is wondering himself. John you know, is wondering Did himself. I get it wrong? <laughs> well, I mean, there is all this discussion that John and Jesus knew each other and mm. were growing right. up together. And Jesus would have, you know, the assumption is Jesus knew his role and was, and I think we established. I think established, a lot of that is presumption. <laughs> I do too. And yeah. I think we established with Jesus at the temple that, Maybe Jesus, even then, he was he was drawn to be there. He yes. was obviously well educated, but yes. may not have at that young age actually known yeah. what was in store. Right, mm-hmm. right. I would agree with that. Mm-hmm. I would agree with that. Yeah. So we see this kind of emphasis, uh, and and so uh, coming back to this, I think you know we can see some continuity. I think there's both continuity and discontinuity. John is proclaiming a kingdom that is more, um, more um, sort of. Um, almost intentionally divisive. Jesus is proclaiming a kingdom that is inclusive, but by doing that, that in itself has a divisive effect. And we can, actually, we can read Luke and Acts through that lens because one theme is the way in which first Jesus and then the gospel about Jesus provokes division and even opposition Mm -hmm. within the Jewish people. Right, right. Um, One of the things um, that that has struck me about this. And, and, and one of the things you are, are going to introduce to us is some of the nuance in the text. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think if we're going to look at that, we need to, we need to take a look at the grammar of the Greek text of, especially verses 21 and 22, the statement about the baptism, because this kind of grammar is not what most of us are used to. Um, much of the Greek of the new Testament is similar to the Septuagint. And then it follows a fairly simple and straightforward mm-hmm. grammatical structure that you find like in the narrative passages in the Hebrew Bible, simple subject, verb, object with modifying clauses, mainly mm-hmm. introduced by prepositions. That's the kind of Greek that we're used to right, in right. the new Testament. Um, here, however, what we have is only one verb 
Egenata. It happened mm-hmm. <laughs> in verse 21. Mm-hmm. And the rest of the whole statement about Jesus' baptism is built out of infinitive and participle mm-hmm. phrases and cl- participle clauses. And so. And I remember those being really a little tricky for new Greek students. I, you know, I would kind say like, in my experience uh, of teaching New Testament Greek, infinitives and participles were always the bane mm. of Greek students. And yeah. one of the things that I tried to try to help people with is that an, uh, um, uh, an infinitive is a verbal noun. So it's, it's right. a verbal structure, but it's functions in, in the ways mm-hmm. that a noun does. A, a participle is a verbal adjective. Okay. And so, again, it's, it's built on a verb stem, but it functions in the ways mm-hmm. that an adjective can. And, and that's literally true, although some of the, many of the participial functions are adverbial, and we don't realize that adjectives, a lot of the adverbs in the New Testament were built off of adjective, adjective stems. Right, right. So, um, um, anyway, because this is so different from the normal Greek of the New Testament. And because that is the style of Luke's, Luke's mm-hmm. gospel, I wanted to just, since we're, we have a shorter passage today, I wanted to take a chance to, to sort of dig into just the grammar of this passage. So again, we have one main verb, agenata, it happened. Well, what happened? Well, the, the rest... Mm-hmm. You know, the rest of what happened and how it happened and when it happened is, is, is spelled out mm-hmm. with these um, infinitival and participial clauses. Okay. Um, and they're, they're all modifying the made verb. It happened or supplying the content of what happened. So we have, several, we have four clauses here. We have first, when all the people were baptized. Mm-hmm. It's, an, it's, an, it's a, an infinitive clause introduced by en to, uh, the preposition en and the, uh, the, the definite article to. And en to with the infinitive usually has a temporal function. It can be translated while or when. Mm-hmm. And in this case, I mean, there's almost this sense that there's this sort of almost continual stream of people coming and being baptized. Yeah. And Jesus yeah. is just one of the many. And, yeah. and so Jesus is baptized, and after he gets up, somebody else comes and is baptized, and they're just people continually coming. That seems to be mm, the implication yeah, yeah. of this. So then the second clause is actually made up of two temporal particle, participles, and they're actually, both of them are genitive absolutes. And genitive absolutes can also be tricky, but essentially it's just a special form of participle, right. okay. participial clause. And so here the, the function is temporal. Sometimes genitive absolutes can have other functions, but here the function is temporal also. And I think I might even translate it after Jesus had also been baptized and while he was praying, because because so part of part of what you deal with in in language is you not only deal with the grammar and the syntax, you also deal with what's called the pragmatics of the situation. You have mm-hmm. to envision what's actually going on mm-hmm. here. And so if we have this idea that that Jesus is one of many people being baptized, he's baptized, and afterwards he's praying. Well, then that's when. The rest of this all happens. So, <laughs> so then the content of what happens is going to come with the next two clauses. So translate. So say what you would translate that in one more time for us. So um, after, after Jesus had also been baptized and while he was praying. Okay. Yeah. And so it, they're both temporal nuances, but a little bit different. Mm-hmm. The idea mm-hmm. is that, you know, this, 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 the content of what happened, the content of what came to Jesus came after he'd been baptized while he was praying. Okay. So then the okay. third clause, yes. okay. the third clause is another infinitive um, uh, clause, and it's functioning like 
a substantive, right? A verbal noun. A noun can function, you know, as an object of a preposition, in, like it does in the first clause. A noun can also function just simply to provide the content of a verb. Mm -hmm. And here, that's what it's doing. It's the subject of the verb. What happened? Well, heaven was opened, mm -hmm. and the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. This happened while, while Jesus was, was praying. praying. Yeah. And that's a nuance that I don't think I would have picked up on. It's only in Luke's gospel. Because I mm -hmm. think we, we all tend to have we all tend to envision this the way Matthew and Mark frame it. Uh, you know, that this is something that happens to Jesus as he's being baptized. Mm -hmm. He's being mm -hmm. baptized and when he comes up out of the water, this you know, the heavens right. opened and the spirit comes on and it's, it's all happening right here. But it's a little different here because Luke adds this little phrase you know, while he was praying. And this seems to set mm -hmm. it apart from the other two Gospels. This, other is, two in, this, this is really interesting. I, I keep thinking of the images I've seen, too. Mm -hmm. And the exactly. images all I mean, show he's coming that, up out of the water, yeah, and it's all happening. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Right, okay, right, interesting. Right. Okay. And so then finally, we have the fourth clause. This, again, is part of the content of what happened. And a voice came from heaven, you are my son, the beloved, with you I am well pleased. And so we have these these four clauses um, in three infinitive clauses and one participial clause that um, essentially fill in, you know, the content of what is being said. You know, if you were diagramming this, this verse, you would <laughs> yeah. have one main, you know, we'd have one main subject and verb. It happened. Well, right. what happened? Well, the, what happened was the subject was the content of the infinitive clauses three right. and four. Right. And, and how did it happen or when did it happen? Well, that, that, those are two infinitive clauses modifying the verb. Wow. I, my, my beginning Greek mind is telling me how much I would fail to get this right <laughs> well, because I would want to take the I'd want to take the part, the the infinitives, and make them an active verb somehow mm -hmm. mentally. I think. And unfortunately, the English language by language translations tend to reinforce that because that's what they do with infinitives and participles a lot. And I, while that's good English translation, it it makes it harder on on people trying to translate the Greek. I know that a lot of people, you know, they they try try to translate the Greek by just defining the words. And sort of doing their own interlinear, and then trying to string the words, the English words together, mm -hmm. and to make the most sense they can. And and the problem with that is that the clues for how the words are functioning is with are, are within the the Greek words themselves. Right, right. And which is why I I taught my Greek students from the very beginning, you know, start by identifying the subject. What's the subject? Right. Looking for something in the nominative case. Look for the verb. Look for the main verb. Start by identifying the main subject and the main verb. Well, we don't really have an explicit subject here other than the clause, right? Right, right. So we have just the verb, again, a ta. Mm -hmm. And then then figure out how the other parts of, of the of the of the verse uh, you know fit together typically they're prepositional phrases in the new testament mm -hmm. but here we've got this this really more sophisticated greek grammar mm -hmm. which is unusual in the greek new testament but this is something if you're if you're trying to work through this in the, right. the greek text you're going to run across this kind of stuff so i'm, I'm sort of saying be prepared well I, you know what i keep thinking about this is luke is the writer and luke obviously knows he's a good writer and he's intentionally choosing this um this this grammatical structure i think to give us this nuance because remember he promises i'm doing this to, mm -hmm. to give you this true and accurate view mm -hmm. of what's going on mm -hmm. so don't collapse it or don't go on with what your <laughs> verbal memory is this is really what happened yeah <laughs> so 
And, and I don't think that he's, he's saying that. I don't think he's saying that to set himself against the other right, gospel accounts. It's just this from from Luke's perspective. This is this is his perspective of what it means to recount these things accurately. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So really interesting stuff yeah. there. Stuff that I think all of us have probably overlooked a little bit. I myself included. Mm-hmm. Myself mm-hmm. included. Yeah. So tell us more about the details of Luke. Yeah, and I think it's important for us to note them because I think some of the nuances that Luke brings to his account of Jesus' baptism are very subtle. And so I think Mm -hmm. this is where we have to really pay attention to some of these details that we may want to gloss over Mm -hmm. more readily. Mm -hmm. But again, I think we need to notice that Jesus' baptism occurs as all the people are being baptized. Remember, you know, in, in, in Matthew and Mark, you have this sense in which all Jerusalem and all the people of the surrounding countryside were coming to be baptized. And then in, in Matthew's gospel, it was the Jewish leaders who came and, and, and John rebuked them mm-hmm, with his words, mm-hmm. you know, saying, you know, produce fruits worthy of repentance. Right. You know, don't, don't come to me thinking you have some right to this. Luke, on the other hand, has John respond to the crowds this way? So the crowds come to him, and Luke says, "Why did you come? You know, don't think that you you know can just have a mm-hmm. claim to this. Produce fruits worthy of repentance." So then he goes on, and, and we have this dialogue where where people ask him, "What should we do?" And he gives mm-hmm. them their response, mm-hmm. and he tells them, "You know, do deeds of practical justice and mercy." And then we have the statement when. Right. The crowds were being were coming to him to be baptized. Um, uh-huh. When all the people were baptized, you know, while right. all the people were being right. baptized, you know, and and so this is something that we would we could easily just miss. But I think we, we're meant to see this that in response to John's preaching about true repentance through daily acts of mm-hmm. mercy and justice, the people, and again, it's important to note here, it's the laos, and in Luke and Acts, laos always refers to the Jewish people. Right. So the Jewish people came to be baptized by John, and, and it's while this is happening. So Luke in Luke's gospel, Jesus' baptism is framed really as one of many, as if right. simply Jesus were simply one of the ones standing in right. line to be baptized, and after he was baptized somebody else stepped up to be baptized right and 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 everything that happened in this account happened afterwards while jesus was praying yeah well it's really i know you'll probably tell us but in my mind is this is really interesting in terms of him being fully human and part of the part of the yes the crowd you know, he's, he's identifying he's yeah. he's getting he's being baptized in solidarity with with the people who are coming yeah now penitent right you, penitent. you know with penitence the other piece that struck me the, yeah. the, the, the G, john has told them don't come unless you're unless willing you're to willing produce to, fruit worthy right. of repentance so a, now they're coming to be baptized and jesus is identifying jesus is himself he's in solidarity with these people well, who are coming in penitence and, you know as i I'm jumping way ahead, but as I think about the theology of the church and how often we take Jesus out of his, and I'm talking very broadly, out of his humanity. Yeah. This is a really human statement. This places him I right think Luke in and among. Is, is intentionally placing Jesus right in the midst of the humanity of the Jewish people. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Very interesting. Definitely. What, so, what else do we learn from this, too? What other nuances? Um, well, again, you know, not only that Jesus was acting in solidarity with the rest of the Jewish people, but there may be, there really is no indication that John was even aware of who Jesus was or that what had happened when he baptized Jesus, because everything that's going on is 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 happening to Jesus. Right. So this brings up an important piece. You know, when when the heavens opened, then 
you know, and, and God is coming down saying, this is my son. It's this is something just for that Jesus. Jesus. This, so John yep. is not necessary. I mean, in, I think this in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew's gospel, it's presented as a public event. Right. And everyone hears the voice. Mm-hmm. But in, in, in Mark and Luke, it's presented as this is something that's happening to Jesus. Yeah. So, so yeah. this confirmation of Jesus' role as the beloved son with the voice from heaven uh, and, and the opening of heaven and, and mm-hmm. the spirit coming upon him bodily, in bodily form as a dove, this happens. This is something Jesus oh, sees. Wow. This is something Jesus experiences. Nobody else. Interesting. So, yeah, I, I, that's a nuance that I actually think is really important. And I, I haven't mentally figured out the theology of that, but. Well, um, I would I would put it along I would have put alongside the visions that some of the several of the prophets had in in the Hebrew Bible. You know, right. this was a this well, is an experience that the prophet has, that's not true. something that anybody that's else has. True, and that that that, that does define Jesus's role as prophet, and um, and I think there's some, I think there's something very interesting between this. He comes, he's part of the crowd, mm-hmm. and then he's you know set aside, mm-hmm. but not pulled up and removed right right? it's 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 this is happening you become very aware of this experience jesus is aware of this experience jesus has claimed himself in a way that he has awareness yeah um and yet he's still there and amongst everyone it's not like it's not like he's levitating above no, the water. <laughs> no, there's not some sort of magical thing <laughs> right, going on here. Right, right, right yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and and so, you know, in fact, I think Luke even strengthens the implication that this is something that uh, that Jesus experienced by adding, and again, and this is only in Luke, that this happened as Jesus was praying. Yeah, yeah. So, wow. so again, it seems that this was something Jesus experienced, not something that anybody else experienced. Yeah. And in, we're going to see that in Luke's gospel, this, there's a purpose for that. The reason for that is, is to confirm to Jesus, yes, this is who you are. Mm-hmm. Yes, this is yeah. your mission. Wow. You know? Wow. And, and so it sort of launch, serves as the launching point yeah. for, for right. Jesus' public right. ministry. Right, right, right. Um, and so moving on then, um, uh, I, I think we've already kind of gone through Mark and, and Mark's account and Matthew's account. Is, is there anything else you need to add, though, with that? Well, I, one, of the, one of the things I think it's important to note is that Codex Beza, along with several early fathers, record the voice in Luke 3.22 somewhat differently from what we have in, say, the New Revised Standard Version. Mm. You, you are my son, the beloved one. With you, I'm well pleased. Mm-hmm. Uh, Codex Beza, which is abbreviated D in the uh, textual apparatuses, uh, and several early fathers quote uh, Psalm 2, 7 from the Septuagint. Oh, okay. You are my son, today I've begotten you. Now, I think one of, oh. the, one of the reasons, I mean, you know, you can, I think you can see one of the reasons why they would have done this was that this sort of strengthens the, the connection with, the with, with, with the um, between the baptism and, and, you know, the confirmation mm-hmm. of Jesus' divine sonship. But the problem with it is it leaves open, you know, the theological door for adoptionism. <laughs> uh, yes. Oh, yes. And yes, so, it does. So, it does indeed. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think there's a reason why the, you know, the majority of New Testament manuscripts don't follow that, but um, uh, it's it, an interesting side note. It is, I think. It, I, yeah. it is an interesting side note. And, and you can see that there's, it, it, it reflects this, um, I, it kind of reflects the, the importance of Jesus's baptism, yeah. I guess, that yeah. I think 
sometimes it's easy to, you know, it's, it's a very important, you, you know, have it confirmation, right? Does Jesus have to be baptized? No. Yes. You know, is the, is yes. the response, well, how, why would he need to be baptized? Luke would say yes. But exactly. And, and a good theology is absolutely. Yes. And so I think. Yes. For a number of reasons. This yeah. language is, is one of those pieces that could bring in a hot of folks. I mean, maybe and, that's and why here, it worked that way. here, the main reason that Luke is presenting is for Jesus' benefit himself. Exactly. Because this provides the divine sanction for mm-hmm. both his identity and his mission, plus it provides the, the empowerment by the right. Holy Spirit right. to carry it out. Right. So, and, you know, I think, I think it's so easy for us to think, wait, what? You know, that this doesn't compute because, you know, Gabriel has already announced right. to Mary that her son would be called the son of the most high. Mm-hmm. And our, our notions, you know, we, we almost sort of read all the synoptic gospels through the lens of John 1, yeah. where the word became flesh, flesh right? Right, right? And so we right. bring that theology of incarnation into our understanding of the synoptic gospels mm-hmm. and their infancy narratives. But the synoptic gospels have a very different take on how this all began mm-hmm. and it's almost of a, a much more human look you know that that jesus you know and, and we have as we said before in john's gospel jesus knows from the very beginning yep. from the very outset who he is and what he's about exactly you don't see that i mean how, how would the infant lying in the manger have a, an awareness of who he was and what he was about right if he's fully human right and that's the whole that's even the whole even thing. the 12 year old boy you know you know jesus you know I think knew that he had a special role in relation to God, even at twelve. But was his twelve-year-old understanding of his his un, his identity and his mission the same as his you know thirty-year-old no. understanding? Well, Absolutely not. If it was, Jesus would have started his ministry exactly. right at twelve. Then, you know, it's a then, whole different. Right, right. Yeah, it's a very different space. Right. So the notion here is not that this is one who is fully human and fully divine, but rather here we have this, here we have an image of one who accepts a commission to serve as God's agent for affecting God's purpose in the world, bringing the kingdom of God. And, and he needs this encouragement of knowing, yes, you Mm -hmm. are my beloved son. And he needs the empowerment of the spirit. This is something I think we don't think of Jesus needing either because, because we think of the logos being incarnate. He comes with his own divine power. You know, he's got his own power pack installed, so to speak, you know, and he doesn't need to, don't, you don't need to charge him up ahead of time, right? He's already ready to go. But in Luke's gospel, and in and, and, and this, you know, in Matthew's perhaps also, but in Luke's gospel particularly, you have this sense that Jesus needs the clarity of this sort of call experience to understand, yes, what you've been unthinking, the things you've been wondering about, yes, they're true. Yes, you are my beloved son. And, and not only that, but, you, you know, the spirit comes right, upon him right. and empowers him to carry out the things that he has been thinking. Th- this is what I should, is this what I should be doing? Right. And I think we should picture a 30-year-old Jesus wondering, is this what I should be doing? Yeah. Is this who I really am? Right. And, and, and the baptism is a, is a is complete that, affirmation of all of that. Right. Yeah. When, interesting, as um, we're talking about this, and I'm not actually focusing on this but the reformers but there were several reformers looked at this passage actually as one of the main um the main if you will uh um um argument points for the trinity mm-hmm. and and mm-hmm. and they were saying look this sure. is where the trinity is clearly uh, at well work. you do have you do have the father and the spirit mm-hmm. involved in the baptism so when of you, the son when you when you were talking there i'm like yeah that's yeah. fits kind of what what some of them are going yeah mm-hmm. definitely mm-hmm. So, um, 
you know, and we see this echoed really in Luke's gospel because immediately following the genealogy, which follows follows this passage, Luke tells us that Jesus went into the wilderness to be tempted full of the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And that's unique. You know, right. in Mark's gospel, we saw that the Spirit drove him into the wilderness to be tempted, right? But in Luke's gospel, he goes full of the Holy Spirit. Interesting. And, mm-hmm. and, and then afterwards, Luke says that Jesus began his public ministry when he returned to Galilee, filled with the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. you know, in a sense, in a sense, what's going on here is that the baptism of Jesus sets in motion his entire ministry and, and everything right. that follows it, including the ministry of the church. Right, And, and so, right. you know, I think, again, we, we, we come with our, our theological notions of incarnation, and we think, well, that was the, that was the definitive intervention. That was the beginning mm-hmm. point. In, in Luke's gospel presentation, the birth was obviously a, a miraculous event, but what sets everything in motion right. is Jesus' baptism. Right, yeah. right. Interesting, and I, I may be going too far, of course, Mark kind of starts here. Is that significant compared to Luke? That Mark kind of starts there. Um, you know, I I I think Mark starts there because Mark just Mark wants to dive right yeah. straight into the gospel. Right. He wants to dive straight into Jesus' public ministry. He doesn't have space in his gospel narrative. You know, mm-hmm. because I think because of the urgency of the proclamation, he doesn't right. have space in his gospel right. narrative for an infancy narrative. Right, right. He doesn't even pay any attention to it at all. Right, right. Uh, but Luke is trying to give us the, the fuller picture. And, 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 mm-hmm. and, you know, I think Luke was aware of these traditions right. about Jesus' birth right. and, and wanted to, to include them in right, his gospel right. intentionally. Right. But he also frames them and uses them to shape them thematically. And so the, I've said, you know, basically all the themes of Luke and Acts are found in, in the infancy narrative of Jesus, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and we could say uh, the first three, three chapters of Luke, you know, you can find almost all the themes in Luke and Acts in, in a nutshell already there. Mm. Um, so, so this, so then this, this combination then of the anointing by the spirit, mm-hmm. spirit comes upon him and the heavenly voice serves to provide what Joel Green would call an impeachable sanction, an unimpeachable sanction of Jesus that will empower him in his sense of identity and in his sense of mission. And so, you know, again, following this in chapter four, you have the account of Jesus' rejection as Nazareth, which is the first episode in Jesus' public ministry as narrated by Luke. So, you know, in Mark, this was something that happened in the Galilean ministry later on. Luke has obviously, compared to Matthew and Mark, Luke has obviously shifted this to the very first episode of his account of Jesus' Mm. public ministry. And in that very first episode, then Jesus reads from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2, which conveys the notion of the Spirit of the Lord having anointed the servant to proclaim and affect the kingdom of God. And again, so, so I think all of these kind, these, 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 these clues in Luke's gospel follow from the baptism, mm-hmm. you know, that, that Jesus is, is able to go and minister in the power of the Spirit because of what happens at the baptism. And, and you have some echoes of this. You know, the, the, the strongest echoes really are right at the beginning, but I think when you see that Jesus is carrying out his ministry, he's, he's carrying it out as he is filled with and empowered by the Spirit. And that's mm-hmm. not always 
brought out in Luke's gospel explicitly, but the use of the word power in connection with the spirit in both Luke and Acts kind of conveys that notion Mm -hmm. or or kind of implies that, I think. And so again, that also, I think, points forward to the empowering of Jesus' disciples in Acts. Yes, And with that then Mm -hmm. connects the whole mission of the church to this confirmation and empowerment of Jesus at his baptism. So again, was it necessary? Yeah, because that's part of why we're doing what we're doing now. Absolutely. And what a... You know, when you look at Luke as a writer, how, what a brilliant structure sure. for, for presenting the gospel. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So again, in my mind, the main ideas associated with Jesus' baptism in Luke's gospel are found in these subtle nuances mm-hmm. that are mm-hmm. so easy for us to overlook. Yep. First, Jesus is baptized simply as another member of the Jewish people. You know? Right, right. Second, Jesus and only Jesus receives this vision confirming his identity and his mission. Mm-hmm. And third, the Spirit comes upon Jesus to empower him to carry out his ministry and will come upon the church to enable them to continue what Jesus began. And so this is, wow. a, this is a very important passage in, in it, Luke's It really, gospel. really yeah. is. And um, I'm really appreciative for the nuances that you've pointed out because I think this will make everyone's, you know, instead of, oh my gosh, we just did this. What am I going to say about the Bible? baptism of Jesus this year, you know, year after year after year after year. I think this really has some very, very interesting pieces that we can, we can talk about and use and really, I think, draw people to why this is such an important event. Yeah, I hope so. Thanks. Yeah, thank you. Hi, friends. We're back, and we're going to ask Christy to guide us through what the Reformers had to say about the baptism of Jesus in Luke's Yeah, gospel. sure. Well, you know, baptism should be bringing in your head of something we have talked about before. And I, I often in the past, and even the last time we talked, we really talk, were talking about infant bat- baptism versus adult baptism. Um, and today I'm, I'm going to step aside from that. We are going to talk with about magisterial reformers as a whole, and they are all practicing infant baptism. Um, but before we get to that, I want to go back a little bit to talk about this whole, this whole debate on the sacraments started. So we have to go back to sacramental theology. Um, because obviously the sacraments are central to our faith as these are the rituals that ties to the body of Christ. Um, And they're important for the Protestant reformations. And they took a critical look at the sacraments of the Roman Catholic tradition. Now remember the Roman Catholics have seven sacraments. And I know we've talked about this before, but we forget. Um, And these um, really are tied up with the ability of the Pope to define sacraments, right? (laughs) So they begin adding, and and these are important events in the life of somebody in a church, right? Like when you die and when you get married, but they're not sacraments and um, they're additions to the faith. Um, And so when reformers really came to look at the practices of the Roman Catholic faith, they're like, these are added on. These are additions. I I mean, if you, if you, if you're a church that has a robust ministry, you're going to be involved in a person's life in these pivotal mm-hmm. moments, exactly. right? I mean, you exactly. think about the funeral, you think about the wedding, exactly. you think about confirmation, you think about these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if, if your church has a robust ministry, hopefully you're going to be involved and the church as the body of Christ is going to be involved in a significant way in these people's mm-hmm. lives. But, and, and so grace is happening there, right? Right, But we don't call it a sacrament. We don't, exactly. So spending a minute to define a sacrament, and and I just went back to um, 
to our book of order at PCUSA, and it's the word of God enacted and sealed in the life of the church the body, and the body of Christ. They are gracious acts of God by which Christ Jesus offers his life to us in the power of the Holy Spirit. They are physical signs and spiritual gifts. I, I love that statement. You know, I know it's so easy to gloss over all of this. As a person who, you know, sort of, I began my journey in the, in the world of the Southern Baptist Church, where baptism is only symbolic, and mm-hmm. the emphasis mm-hmm. is on only symbolic. Did they and even true, call it a, a sacrament, or was it no, an ordinance? ordinance. Mm-hmm. There are ordinances mm-hmm. of the church. They're, they don't have sacraments in the Southern mm-hmm. Baptist world. They're ordinances because they were commanded by Jesus to do. And so, you know, in the Great Commission, Jesus commanded us to baptize, and at the Last Supper, he commanded us to remember mm-hmm. him in, this, in the Lord's Supper. But, but they were only symbols. And, and I love, the, the, you know, every aspect of this. The word of God enacted mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. sealed in the life of the church, the body of Christ. And that phrase that you said, I really want to highlight this. Rituals that tie us to the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. That is so important and, and it's not to be overlooked. But then gracious acts by God. Jesus, Christ Jesus offers his life to us. In the power of the mm-hmm. Holy Spirit, every—it's like you got to yeah. break it down. Each each phrase, each each part of that statement is significant. I really, really love the care they took as they are def- helping us walk through what these what these are. Um, you know, as we're looking at this, you know, if you if you step back, you you can see that they are rituals, right? Yeah. And um, now reformers read. That, did recognize they were tied to God grace, but our reformers debated how that mm-hmm. happened within right. the sacrament. In other words, and so this is the debate that's taking place that will eventually get us to where we're at. So the question marks were su- things such as, does the water itself contains God's grace? And by bathing in it, is grace conferred? Or is water merely a symbol of God's power, which we just read, or somewhere in between? And so they're using scripture to, to support the varied and even this scripture here and even nuanced positions regarding the Lord's Supper and baptism both, excuse me, but here in particular, the baptism. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, we have already been introduced to a really broad understanding of what happens in baptism from the Reformed camp. Um, St. Augustine, we have this idea that baptism is a visible sign of an invisible reality, but again, Protestants, Roman Catholics agree on that, but what does that actually sure, sure. mean? And I love that statement, a visible sign of an invisible yeah. reality. So in Roman Catholic tradition, and this is going to be um, uh, upheld, if you will, by during the, um, during the Catholic Reformation, right? Remember, we often talked about the Protestant Reformation, but when we're talking about the whole realm of Reformations, they go through one as well, and part mm-hmm. of that is affirming their dogma. So... Um, in the Roman Catholic tradition, there's an important emphasis on the power of the sacrament itself, that the performance of the rite can convey grace to the recipient. Um, and so in this context for baptism, the water itself and the performance of baptism conveys grace to the recipient. And the water thus is sacred and has to be treated like it is divine. This doesn't surprise us, right? Holy water, right? Holy water, <laughs> yes. And, you know, that is something that I find myself talking with our, you know, parishioners about um, because they think that it has to be this holy water and you have to go down to the Jordan and haul it up. And, it, and 
one of my favorite memories of a baptism was when um, the church that I was at forgot to fill the font. And so <laughs> the poor pastor there, she was a, a, a new pastor. She's like, someone go get some water. And she poured from this cheap plastic pitcher. Yeah. And she's like, ordinary elements of God's yes. grace. Yes. Yeah. And it was just really, it was really good. <laughs> she did a great job. Yeah. And I'll never forget that because I was like, oh, how is she going to do this? <laughs> you know, I, I think I've told the story before, but maybe it's worth repeating that I had a I had an elder, a younger elder in my church in the Houston area, and her husband was had converted mm-hmm. to Catholicism as an adult. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had baptized his older son. They, they didn't, he, I guess he had the Catholic church baptize his younger son, but he was concerned about his young, older son's baptism because, you know, not only does it, not only is it the power of the sacrament itself, but the way the rite is performed. So the water has right. to be, because they pour the yes. water. And yes. so the water has to actually run over the person because that washes away the right. sin. Yeah, right. <laughs> and so he was concerned about that. And I said, well, the water does run down the child's head when I when I place it on mm-hmm. his head. So I tried to reassure him of that. But obviously, I'm not sure he was. The look on his face was kind of like, hmm, yeah, because we don't practice pouring. We, we practice right. in, you know. Exactly. We, well, we, and I, um, I'm i an associate pastor. My senior pastor is a sprinkler. There's not yeah. a lot of water he uses at all. Yeah, and yeah. and uh um, uh, there's, a, there's a drop coming a drop. down, maybe. Exactly, maybe a drop, right? Not a not a big deal. Although his babies never cry. <laughs> I've never had one either. I'm sure you haven't. <laughs> so, friends, um, what is interesting and maybe kind of interesting for you is they actually believe the holy water itself could ward off yeah. evil. Or you think about, mm-hmm. the, you know, Bram Stoker's Dracula, right? Ex- you know, exactly. You consecrated host and the holy, wa- the exactly. vial of holy water. Yeah. Vial of holy. And um, the, the, the challenge here is that the sacraments actually are kind of like medicine. And so yeah. what you have to, you have to, you know, keep, you have to do things where you continue to use holy water and dip your fingers in it to yeah. to en- reenact that power. And the same thing is also like with the Lord's Supper. Right? I, be- I believe I'm remembering correctly that I think it was Tertullian who said, who uses the phrase that the, that the Lord's Supper was the medicine of immortality. Th- there you go. Yeah. There you go. Um, so just a note, Roman Catholics would say that the sacrament of the Protestants, so just in contrast, does not really matter is the sacrament themselves do not confer grace. Mm. So just keep that aside because I'm going to talk about the Protestant. Well, and that, 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 I wonder about that because, you know, in 2006, um, there was this big announcement that the PCUSA and the Roman Catholic Dialogue had, had agreed right. to recognize each other's no, baptisms. Le, yeah, and you're correct. And, and let me correct that statement a little bit. This would have been in the 16th okay, century. Right, yeah, yeah, right. yeah. Um, we have come to much space where we have said, okay, actually, we agree on a lot of these things. But, yeah. but this was a 16th century okay, take. Right, yeah, yeah. Right. Um, and so. I did find a commentary um, by Erasmus. Now, remember, Erasmus is a humanist, and he criticizes the Roman Catholic tradition, but he remains he remains Roman Catholic. And so for him, there's it, it, when, when we're looking at the baptism of John the Baptist and the baptism of Jesus, um, and there's there's some there's some tradition about trying to separate these as separate things. Mm-hmm. And he's saying, 
actually this is only this is all one thing you mm. can't separate the performer of the right from the right itself mm. so it becomes he, he he's going to collapse everything that happens in there is that and it's going to have that sense of that medicinal sense we're talking about yeah yeah now protestants grace is revealed through faith and the sacrament does not in itself bestow the grace but rather act as, as we Presbyterians would say, a sign and seal of God's free grace. And for the Protestants, the water is not in itself holy, but does reflect the presence of the Holy Spirit. And again, very, very general, because every nuance of this that you can think of, they debate it. Sure. Um, but, you know, I made that statement about, 16th century Roman Catholics, 16th century Protestants would argue that sacraments are necessary as they are from God and necessary for affirming the faith of the believer, but act as part of the larger word of God, and that act of faith is ultimately necessary yeah, for salvation. Which makes sense. Mm-hmm, yeah. mm-hmm. So, I have a few examples of some reformers and some of the ways they use this. So, Zwingli, for example, and remember Zwingli, he's our, um, our, our reformed person who actually kind of becomes... Um, it becomes one that many of our Anabaptists are going to yeah. jump, are going to leap from. His, his, yeah. The the Swiss, mm-hmm. the the continental Anabaptist movement, you know, comes from Zwingli, basically. Yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And he says, look, he was the one that, as Alan was talking about, that really had the idea that it is just a sign, it's, um, an act, and uh, the only true baptism is by the Spirit, which is not mm-hmm. reliant on the action of baptism at. All. Yeah, you could have taken that straight out of a, a, a Southern Baptist exactly. theology text. Exactly, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, human actions cannot change the soul. Um, they do not give grace, according to Zwingli, and they do not strengthen the faith. Um, so this is like the opposite end sure. of the Roman Catholic tradition. Um, and I think you could argue that for Zwingli, sacraments are really meaningless. And that was something that I really struggled with. That was part of the, the, the ethos of, of baptism in the Southern Baptist world that, that really bothered mm-hmm. me, you know, that it, it did seem like, you know, that the sacraments really were meaningless. And so you can have people get baptized multiple times. Right. You know, yeah. because, well, I'm not really sure I'm saved. Okay, well, let's baptize you again. <laughs> right, right. So what an interesting, right. Um, but... Um, What's interesting here, as I said, while I'm focusing on our magisterial folks, which actually, Zwingli dies too early. His ideas just add as springboards for also, you know, the Calvinist tradition as well. Um, he dies so young, but he's, you remember, he's a contemporary with Luther. They were exactly the same age. Mm. So, um, you know, and, and, and died in this bizarre little war, and, and we never really got to see the maturity of his, his belief completely. Um, but um, some of these ideas got swept up by the radicals. And so it's the, they, they went so far even as I found a group um, discussed uh, by a, a historian named Gary, Gary Waite. He's at the University of New Brunswick who talked about the, um, some of the spiritualists in Amsterdam who just decided they just kind of basically dumped worship altogether. None of these things human do is, is necessary for, for faith. Mm-hmm. So what a strange, wow. and, there, and there, that was one group, right, that had gone that far, but it kind of gives you an idea of how, how, how things can kind of go awry. <laughs> Surely. <laughs> right? Surely. Um, so another person to emphasize um, 
uh, to talk about the passage, which is Melanchthon. And, you know, it, we always think of him as your, your Luther, but remember, um, your follower of Luther, and he was, but he was, he was the compromiser. He's mm. trying to make Roman Catholicism make sense with Reformed tradition, with Luther's ideas. So, and it was really um, Melanchthon that was going to emphasize that idea that is picked up later by Calvin, this idea of the seal of the Holy Spirit. And, and, um, within baptism so it's the sign and seal concept and i guess you can see that mm -hmm. from from jesus baptism that the holy spirit seals christ mm -hmm. exactly mm -hmm. exactly um and what's interesting with him is he's the one that jumps a little bit further and and talking about this in terms of the covenantal mm -hmm. um um uh, practice which jesus is reflects his covenant with god to die for mm. us later wow. which is really interesting but yeah. i love that because when we talk about covenant with jesus we talk ultimately covenant about us as believers in jesus and i think it begins to jump I, I do think it influences calvin's concepts then which deal so heavily with the body of christ as the mm -hmm. church is the body of christ mm -hmm. so that is of course why our baptisms are always done within yes. the service right yes. with where the word is proclaimed and yes. for for calvin it said look baptism is is a sacrament but it is part of the word of god yeah. um, and you can't have it without the word of god and you can't have it without the body of christ yeah. without the mm -hmm. word and without the body and mm -hmm. without the spirit mm -hmm. the water is just water and the bread is just bread and, mm -hmm. and the the, the wine is just wine. Yeah. Right, right. And I thought that Calvin's take on it too um, is that this kind of foreshadowed the scriptures um, in terms of the, his theology of pr providence that he mm. he's going to build out of that. Mm. So um, really interesting stuff. Um, and I, I think finally, um, one of the things I, I want to point out is we're looking at 16th century figures in particular is that there's a lot of fluidity in their ideas. Their ideas come apart. They come back together. Um, if you look at an early something early by Luther, he'll develop it later on. So you have to remember that he's going to develop his ideas. We see that with Calvin. We know that with the Institutes. He he adds on and they grow and they grow and they grow and they grow. He's working on this this complete theology, and I think that's an important thing to point out. Um, because what happens is we tend to look backwards at history and say, oh, and we tend to be very dogmatic about what these people believed. This is what the Lutherans believed. This is what the Reformed right. believed. And we get that from the period that historians have identified as confessionalization. Mm -hmm. This is a concept that emerged in the 1990s um, with some of the uh, Bernd Muller, Hans Hillebrand, um, um, some of these really, really... Um, uh, well-respected German historian saying this is when the dogmatic um, pieces of the Reformation came. This is when we get to separate who who means what. Sort of and like we, Senator Dort in the Westminster well, Confession. Well, that, that and all develops of off, right. off of that, right? Right. Um, and so um, it's this period, and it, it's it's a formulating period, and and, and they, they track it. But um, I did some work with the. Um, uh, Foreman of Concord in 1580. That's the Lutheran. Mm, yeah. And that's really when this is, we're going to affirm 1555. So it started then, but we're going to affirm this. This is what the Lutheran, this, this, this is, is what the it's Lutheran be. position. Yeah, this yeah. is a Luther's position, even though it wasn't necessarily Luther right, all the time. Right. And so I just it want It was Lutheranism. Right. Yeah. So I want you to keep that in mind too, 
um, as you just th- th- as you think about. So that began already in the in the 16th century. Oh, it, it began absolutely. at the end of the oh, 16th absolutely century. Absolutely began. Yeah. I mean, yeah. as I said, I tied it to beginning in 1580, but. I would argue it, the beginnings of this, I mean, beginnings of this start as the ideas start, mm-hmm. but there's ideas flowing back and forth and some of them are, are more set in stone early on. And I think what they really do is they're looking for, you know, these are early modern thinkers. So they are beginning to tap on what I say, what, what is the truth mm-hmm. um, and how their faith is built around it. Um, but they're not yet at, at they're not yet, always at the space of identifying where that starts. But we're sort know. of in the exploratory phase yeah. of that. Yeah. yeah. You know, when we talk about theologies today, usually somebody starts with a premise, you know, mm-hmm. like love. God is love, you know, and 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 um and and your 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 um your fellow is in that space. Jurgen Moltmann. Yeah, Jurgen, yeah. thank you. Moltmann. Um or Carl Barth, right? Yes. Or yeah. so these different these things are beginning, mm-hmm. but they aren't they aren't to that modern Modern yeah, but I would say I would say the work of Bard and Moltmann, while they certainly um, were pioneering in some of the ways in which they applied certain reformed principles, nevertheless they were they were more the sort of the full fruition exactly of a tradition, you know, in in certain certain mm-hmm. ways, and and of course to some extent some would say I think that 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 the reformed tradition is still you know bearing fruit and, and coming to full fruition in other ways as well. Right. You know, because there, it's not like everything that needs to be said has been said. You know, there's still things, ways in which we're, the, right. the tradition is developing. Right, you know? right. Well, and, and I think I love our 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 own claim is reformed instead of reforming. And yes. to me, that's the only truth there. That's part of the truth, right? Mm-hmm. That's part of the mm-hmm. the pattern of the only real truth that you can't it, it you can't. You evolve. can never really nail it right. down. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. That's why we don't have a a a an official declaration of the essentials of the reform faith for the PCUSA. Exactly. Right? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you, everyone. We'll come back and chat about something uh, um, about how to maybe apply this passage. Thank you, Thanks. Christy. Hi, friends. We're back. And as we were talking in the break, I, we came up with this great ordination question. You know, the, uh, the person that comes up to you and asks, gosh, did Jesus have to be baptized? How do you respond? No, but I think it's a good place for us to, uh, to launch our discussion. And, you know, uh, the different Gospels, I think, would all say yes for different reasons. Uh, but we find in Luke's Gospel two things here that are very important. First of all, while it seems clear that Jesus had already at the age of 12 a sense of his special identity and special connection with the Father and perhaps a special role that he was going to play in in carrying out the Father's purpose, um, you know, did you not know that I must be either in my Father's house or about my Father's business? You know, he already Mm -hmm. has that sense. Um, I, I think then that this event provides sort of the final confirmation of what must have been a growing sense in him all along. And so, you know, this then provides Jesus the confidence. You know, in Mark's gospel, we saw this with Jesus ministering with authority all the time, right? Mm -hmm. Jesus Mm -hmm. ministers with authority in Mark's gospel. That's a theme. 
Well, I think this is Luke's version of that. You know that that this this event, this event of Jesus' baptism, becomes sort of the the you know the word from God, the mm-hmm. word of the Lord came to Jesus. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, Luke tells us the word of the Lord came to came to John, right? Well, the word of the Lord came to Jesus, and in a very real sense, mm-hmm. right? It says, right. "You are my son, the beloved. With you, I'm well pleased." And so it 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 confirms for him what he'd been thinking mm-hmm. i think already right. all along right but then the other side of it is that you know again we have to think of this as you know this isn't a man who's got a halo as he comes out of the water <laughs> really? or perhaps even has a halo <laughs> as he goes into the water right right because Which we, we see all the see in the images by some of the images right <laughs> well i mean yeah i mean even in the even in the manger he's got a halo yeah, right exactly. you know in some of the portraiture you know he's got a halo at 12 when he's sitting with the tip with the, with the teachers in the temple right and and no this is not the jesus with the halo this <laughs> is jesus who is coming to his understanding of his his call and his purpose and his identity just the way any mm-hmm. other person mm-hmm. would and and he he not right. only needs god to confirm that for him but he right. also needs the empowerment of the spirit to carry out right. his 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 role now again you know, we contrast this with John's gospel. You know, in John's gospel, Jesus right. seems to have all the power he needs mm-hmm. to do whatever he wants to, you know, and he works these signs in and of himself, you know, because mm-hmm. this is how he reveals the Father's glory. Right. But um, in this gospel, you have a, a, a much more human understanding of Jesus, perhaps. You have a, or perhaps a better picture of the full humanity of Jesus that, you know, he was subject to weakness, and he was he was not this, um, you know, sort of um, hero heroic figure striding about with inherent divine power and authority residing in him. You know, he needed the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, just like we need the empowerment yeah, of the Holy Spirit to carry yeah, out our ministry. Yeah, yeah, just yeah. like the whole the, the early church needed the empowerment of the exactly. Holy Spirit to carry out their ministry. You know, and I'm thinking about this too, and I, I, I'm coming at it from you know, God sent Jesus to us. And so I think there's something really, really interesting how Jesus becomes one of us. And Jesus is baptized, like we're going to be baptized right. too. And he comes down and, and as Luke presents as just one of the others getting baptized. Mm-hmm. And there's just something very much of, you know, <laughs> Jesus came down to save us by being part of us, by identifying, by identifying with us. our mm-hmm. experience and living our experience, and I think there's something really raw yes. about that, and we forget something that powerful sometimes. That. Very powerful, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And and I think there's that sense in Luke's gospel. You know, in Luke's gospel, Luke Luke presents a Jesus who is very much concerned with um, the marginalized folks, mm-hmm. the down, the folks who would be excluded, the folks who would be outcasts. And um, I mean, the parable of the Good Samaritan is yep. only in Luke's gospel, right? Right, right. And, and so um, um, uh, the parable of the prodigal, prodigal son. son. Right. I just thought the same yeah. thing. Uh-huh. Yeah. And and so um, you know, you have this you have this pre- pre- presentation of Jesus as someone who identifies with and is in solidarity with these marginalized people. Mm-hmm. And and so the idea that he would be baptized just as another Jewish right. man in the line of people who were lined up to be baptized by John the right. Baptist on that right. day in the Jordan River, right. you know, I, you know, some would say, well, gosh, that just makes Jesus' baptism insignificant. Well, no, no, it just, it sort of makes it more, I, more just 
run of the mill, you know, it's, there's nothing special about it. Well, what's special about it is that Jesus takes on this responsibility of being a Jewish mm-hmm. person fully and freely, yeah. just yeah. like he takes on well, the responsibility of being a human being who's yeah. going to live under God's, you know, in yeah. obedience to God's call and, and fulfill God's purpose, you know, as and, we're all called to do. And even having an awareness of, of, John say, look, give him your coat, you know, right. and, 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 and if you have food, give him food. And even though Jesus would have done that in his being, yeah. there's this, it's like, there's a way, an awareness that, that everyone else mm-hmm. is, is who is coming is now doing that and yeah. repenting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to skip over a little bit to Matthew because, you know, and Matthew has this whole dialogue between John. John recognizes right. Jesus. Yes. So it's a different yes. kind of picture. And he says, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me for mm-hmm. baptism? And Jesus says, right. you know, let it be so, for it, is, for it is necessary for us to fulfill all righteousness. righteousness. Yes, and yes. so, you know, uh, I think you have there this sense that, yes, I need to carry out this baptism i need to identify with with these people who are flawed and fallible because this is part of my mission is to is to redeem them mm-hmm. by becoming one of them mm-hmm. right? And, right and so um i think luke does that in his own way you know that jesus is going to redeem us by becoming one of us and he does that by stepping in line with all the others to be baptized by john the right, baptist right yeah. yeah now the question that i would follow up with then do you have to be baptized? Oh, very good question. Do you have to be baptized? I mean, you know, that's in a Roman Catholic tradition, you have to be baptized. Right. You absolutely because they have this whole theology about of of that you have to be baptized or you would you go to you go to hell, you go to you, a you, purgatory. You die in original sin. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um and so um there you do. I we if if you follow Calvin's concept of sovereignty, God can do whatever God wants to do and can Surely. save you outside of that. But to be someone living in the faith, yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah, and, and so the answer is yes. You do have to be mm-hmm. baptized. You know, and, and this comes out again out of some of the dialogues I had when I was a Southern Baptist, you know, because most Southern Baptists would say, no, you don't have to be baptized in order to be saved. Uh, because what's important is faith, right? Mm-hmm. And you right. can have faith without baptism. And, and you know, I can say, okay, yeah, I can see some extreme examples of that, some exceptions, mm-hmm. right? But the norm in the New Testament is repentance, faith, baptism, gift of the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. all one experience. Mm-hmm. That is how the New Testament conceives conversion. Mm-hmm. And, and, to say, I think if you if you went up to if you went up to Peter or Paul or any of the New Testament figures and say said, "Do you have to be baptized in order to be saved?" They would look at you like you. They would they would just scratch their heads and say, "What? What are you talking about?" You know, I mean, it's like because baptism is an integral part of the experience of salvation. Right. How do you take it out? Right. Exactly. Exactly. And 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 it's a part of being a person of faith. Yeah. Now, I do think. You know, obviously, an infant that is not baptized is not going to hell. Absolutely, we, we not. all agree that. Absolutely. So, not. in that respect, it differs from a Roman. Yes. Yeah, we're talking about different theologies. Di- there's a different ba- foundation for the right. necessity, right? Exactly. In the Roman Catholic world, it's 
you know, yes, you have to be baptized because if you don't, you die in your sin. In, in our world, it's yes, you you have to be baptized because it's an integral part of of the process of coming to salvation. Exactly, it's part of that sanctification process, yeah. and so it's part of it's a part and parcel of, of of faith. Right, it is. So it's it's an interesting interesting thing. Do you have to be baptized as an infant? No, you don't have to be. I mean, there's times that, you know, whenever that faith draws you or, you know, as, an, as a young person, your, your parents are, 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 are bringing you into that body of Christ, but that's how you are part of that, this body as the exactly. church. Exactly. Well, and that's why I love that, that phrase that you use, that the, mm-hmm. the sacraments are rituals that tie us to the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, do we need to be part of the body of Christ? Yes, yeah, we that, do. Yeah, that's the thing. <laughs> and I've been really, really, really intrigued lately with um, and thinking about the body of Christ as the whole church. I think our individualistic world right now, we get so right. caught up with with me and my choice that we really lose track of what it means to be a Christian and what a call is on our yep. faith, which is in, it's a corporate faith. Yes. Your this kind of idea it's just between me and god no. you don't get it you're missing i can worship god just as easily walking through the woods yeah. on a sunday morning as i can in church you're, no you can't you're missing out what your call is on your yeah. as, as a christian and yeah. you're called to care for one you can't you, it's a very self-absorbed approach to christianity well but you don't have the you don't have the encouragement and the 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 just the the empowerment and and the um, inspiration of worshiping together with the body right. of, of with the body of Christ, right. right? Yeah, yeah. You know, in my mind, you know, I think so. Do you need the Word of God enacted and sealed in the life in, in your life? Yes. Yes. <laughs> do you need Do you need to become a part of the body of Christ? Yes. yes. Do you need the gracious acts of God in your life? Yes. yes. Do you need Christ to offer His life to you? Yes. yes. Do you need the power of the Holy Spirit? Yes. yes. So, do you need to be baptized yes, yes. <laughs> right. so yeah um i i and and I, I just i i keep thinking of really today you know as we're talking about uh, jesus being with everybody else again that corporate sense right there mm-hmm. the prior you know the, the verse prior the talking about you know sharing your cloak or um sharing, sharing your, your food, your food yeah. and these things are all about not just an individual thing, and then the, really the beauty of the baptism within this context and Luke's gospel in this context, I think sheds a lot of light. And, and frankly, does. the whole idea of fire and the coming down of the Spirit on the whole church, yeah. not just the one dude, right. um, this really has a lot to do with yeah. the corporate, corporate well, church. Well, and there, there, this is a part of Luke's theology in both Luke and Acts as well, is that in that what happens in Jesus' life, what happens in his ministry, what happens in the mission of the church are part of the larger story of God's work of salvation in the biblical narrative, right? Mm-hmm. And, and Luke ends the book of Acts with an open-ended ending on purpose because right. the idea is it's still ongoing. That saving work of God in, in the world is still ongoing yeah. through us. Yep. And, and so, you know... Again, it is it is that sense that we are a part of that. Mm-hmm. Do we need to feel like we are a part of that? 
Yes, yes, we do. Yeah, we do. We really we do. We do. And I think that's something that's missing with a lot of people right now, especially in this time. I you know, agree. people are missing that sense of of belonging to something bigger than themselves. And you know, churches are flawed and churches are messy, and we all have our experiences with that. I mean, if you're a member of the PCUSA Leaders Facebook page, you know, you know, you know you hear you hear these stories and you understand them all too well, right? Mm-hmm. And I love the church, and I love the church I'm a part of for all of its flaws. But more than that, you know, I think what keeps me going is being a part of the body of Christ. Yeah, it's the body. Exactly. Being a part of the kingdom of God. Exactly. Being a part of that big yeah. narrative of salvation that what God yeah. is doing in this world. I agree. Yeah. I agree. Well, well, thank you, everybody. Thanks, Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.